Hello once again to the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies podcast. This recording was taken on Tuesday 8th of November 2016. On this occasion we welcomed Guy Gadney who gave a very stimulating talk about digital publishing. He is introduced by Nicola Timbrell. Our guest speaker today is Guy Gadney. He's going to tell us a little bit about his uh, past, yeah, and what else he's going to tell us. Not too much, not too much. Not too much detail on the past. But, but uh, he's going to talk about digital and storytelling and all sorts of wonderful, exciting things. So I'm going to pass over to Gadney. Please excuse people eating their lunches. They have a very full-on day today. And oh. you'll have to wait for yours till afterwards. Okay. Thanks. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, so good morning, good afternoon. Uh, I want to keep this session as interactive as possible, please. So if you have a question, don't wait till the end. Just stick up your hand. I'll probably run for about half an hour, uh, and, then we'll enter, and then we'll force it into discussion. Um, but please, I'm here, use me. I know sort of, I've, I've had some experiences in publishing here in Australia, um, and I'll take you down one line of those experiences, but if there's something that is relevant to you, then just ask. Um, my past, uh, I prefer to, to try and forget in some ways, <laughs> um, but I will go through this as, I'll treat this as a counselling uh, experience for me and relive some of it. Um, with, the, with, with the relevance to publishing, um, my second job out of the university was the first head of digital for Penguin Books um, when they were based in Kensington. Um, it was the, one of those times where publishers were all leaping into what was then called multimedia um, and no one quite knew what it was. Uh, but we had a really ambitious sort of portfolio that we wanted to do. And naturally, the way that we approached it was uh, as a layer across the rest of the business, across the publishing strategy. So we had some in children's books. We had, we had some in very early uh, children, so Topsy and Tim. We did a whole range of CD-ROMs, and apologies for all the archaic terminology like CDs and um, stuff, but it's what it was. Um, we did some some experiments with the children's classics, the puffins. So we did Black Beauty, Call of the Wild, um, which were audiobooks narrated with a series of sort of animations around them as well. Um, they never saw the light of day, but they were actually the ones that I wish had, had sort of reached the general audience because the audio the audio recordings we did were were exceptional and they were very uh, very sort of strong performances from the from the actors who we had doing them. Um, we did some work out of Penguin USA on, J on Jack Kerouac, on the Beat Poets, um, which again were gorgeous, uh, gorgeous project, products in their own right. There was a lot of really great graphic design that went in it, as well as, um, you know, video histories of Kerouac, Kerouac reading as well. So what we were doing, I suppose, was trying to, trying to experiment with, with what was then the digital medium to expand out on on what a book was um, and the essence of a book. Um, and you'll hear me talk about books and you'll hear me talk about stories. And I make quite a, there is obviously a big difference, but I, I want to really drive home the difference between the two because I think it's where 
uh, some of the real challenges that you guys are going to face in publishing are going to be uh, driven from. We then did one other project that I mentioned when I was at Penguin called Rock and Rom. I wasn't <laughs> responsible for the title, but as a history of publishing in the, uh, when was this song? This was like 96, 90, 1997. It was the moment where publishing uh, pivoted slightly, and it pivoted slightly away from um, these enormous characters who were the editors-in-chief uh, of, of, of publishing houses around the world, uh, but mainly in New York and London. And they were the uh, people who made the, the, the decisions. You know, if you study the history of publishing, you'll know names like Peter Mayer, Carol Janeway over in New York. Um, they were the sort of legends, and they, they were um, the people who really led these organisations. And they led from the front, incredible characters. Uh, Peter Mayer, while um, I was there, sort of, you know, used to sit in his office with a big desk and smoking on the desk with only one lung at the time. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it was sort of that sort of era. But then in about 96, it pivoted slightly into being publishing, being more, uh, or commissioning, being more driven um, or more influenced by marketing and sales teams. Not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it was what it was. So titles like Rock and Rum would come out, which you know, didn't come out of the editorial team, it came out of the marketing team, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> Rock and Rum was interesting because it was an original, in the sense that here was a title which did not exist in book form. Um, it was, I, I, and it still is a, I still have a copy of it somewhere, it, it is an astonishing um, project. What we did was we took... Um, the music records from an organisation called MCPS, which I think is the Mechanical Copyright Protection Society in the UK, which has every uh, detail about every single or album that has ever been released up to now. Who was on it, who the backing sessions, who the sessions musicians were, uh, titles, everything. We took that, we took about four or five books, Penguin Dictionary of Rock and uh, Roll, I think, or uh, of rock music, whatever, and a bunch of other book titles, and we merged them all, these sort of databases, we pooled them all into this big project, um, which was so addictive if you like music, because the first thing you, you do when you go into a project like that is you type in the name of some, an artist that you like, if you think now, just do it as an exercise, if you were to start that, who would be the person you, 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 know, you key in, you look up this particular artist, and then you can see every title they've ever done, who they've worked with, uh, or their entire history done as this sort of story within the database. And that, uh, that project, Rock and Roll, was, was fascinating to me. And this, this talk, I should say, is going to be a, a, a storytelling and publishing. Uh, sorry, story, storytelling in the digital age. I'll cover a bit of that, but I also want to cover publishing as, a, as an industry because the two are intertwined. Um, so this project, Rock and Roll, really started to then trigger something in me which was would it be it was like a story you know this project it was like when i when as you're going through these databases you're going through these different pathways finding out who these artists had played with what songs they were on who the session musicians were and then you veer off down this pathway along the session musician find out who they'd worked with um and it was almost like this piece of interactive fiction that you would go through or like not necessarily fiction but it was an interactive story as i as I go through, because it, the story changes with every, every pathway that I take. Now, 
I do not mean this that it is a um, choose your own adventure, which is how a lot of people will talk about interactive story. Choose your own adventures are set as a structure, they are tree structures in, in many ways. This is very much more fluid, and I found that fascinating that we could have this interactive experience in a very fluid narrative. Um, and I suppose that then, that little bit of a fire in me, which uh, continues and will continue, because uh, I think if you think about the concept of interactive fiction, those two words, um, in many ways they are a contradiction in terms. You, you think about fiction and story and how we may tell a story, uh, and then you try and make it interactive. And the problem with it is a story that you're telling, whether you're telling it you know, to friends or whether you're reading it or seeing it on screen, is that the moment you put interactivity into a story, it's interrupted. And uh, that does something. And it does something to the pace of it, of a story, where you might, the author might be trying to get into a rhythm of telling a story, and then suddenly it's like, oh, no, I want to go up here and find out about what was in the cupboard, or, you know, I want to walk out of the room and explore somewhere else. Well, the author's then sort of almost left like a wallflower at a party, sort of thinking, well, where's my read gone? I come back, because I was telling the story. So, as a story creator, we have to think about those scenarios. Um, and... So that then, this concept of interactive fiction has really driven a lot of what I've, I've been doing since. And, and my career has moved from publishing, I then moved over, what did I do, I can't remember now, but going off to BBC, I worked at The Guardian newspaper, so I touched newspapers, digital again, BBC Worldwide, digital, and just spent 15 years in Australia, um, uh, which I can make jokes about, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so too easy. Um, <laughs> Apologies for Australians in the audience. Uh, and then, sort of coming back, I was—I I really felt that having having worked a lot in TV and film and these sorts of um, visually crafted media, I wanted coming back. I wanted to get back to what the, the core of the, the story was again, and have this challenge to myself of trying to discover uh, interactive fiction. So, um, have got again very close back into the world of publishing again. Uh, and recently worked on um, projects like Julian Fellows' Belgravia, which I'm sure you're aware of, it was published by Hachette, um, which is interesting, and I'm happy to take questions about it if you're interested. Um, and then also, if you want to know a little bit, again, I'm not going to talk too much about these, but I write a monthly column for the bookseller um, about, and the brief for that was, from what I'm seeing at the moment in the world of digital things, in its broadest sense, uh, the brief was write something about how those things might relate back to publishing. And there's one article, I was just rereading them last night in preparation for this, thinking, is there anything that I wanted to drill down into more detail? And there's one that I do urge you to have a think about or read, and I, I you know, have to engage in conversations about, which was a piece I wrote uh, a few months ago about what publishing can learn from the airline industry. Now, so I don't repeat myself, has anyone read it? And, <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. Um, the premise was this. Uh, um, book publishing, and these will be generalizations. Generally speaking, the price of a book is set because it's printed on the cover, right? Over the last many years, the airline industry has changed away from that model where you used to have a set 
cost of a seat to now something which, as you know, if you've just, and I was writing this in August when everyone's going away on holiday, uh, everyone's booking their flights last minute. And as you all do, you're booking flights or anything, you know, you're looking at the different algorithms across all the different sky scanners and different easy jet flight, whatever. And you know that they go up and down in the morning or afternoon. So the idea was, why don't books do that? You know, why don't, why wouldn't a book change its price in the afternoon based on the morning and what would it feel like so now i know you haven't read the article please go and read it because it's 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 uh it's one of the ways in which i think about the industry which is sort of these things are changing why 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 shouldn't this be the case and it's prompted a lot of discussion it's prompted a lot of discussion because some people came back and said well actually we already do you know we we do we we, we price on a uh on a um on a variable basis. Now, my view is the problem with that is they price it completely wrong. And again, these generalizations, but when a book comes out, in general, that is the point where it's most highly discounted. But, well, how crazy is that? You don't, that doesn't happen in pretty much any other medium. In any other medium, the moment it comes out is the moment where uh, you get the highest price because you get the fan base in. And we've, you know, we did the app for Sherlock, for BBC drama. We kept that high price for six months because we, frankly, because we knew that the, the, the fans would, you know, would pay for it. Because you do. You know, if you've got the fan base, they will pay for it at the high price. It's then after that, after that fan base has been exhausted, that you start the discounting process. Not right on publication day. Crazy. But hey, that's the way it is. And then it seems to go up and down. Now, I, uh, who again, sort of straw poll? Oh no, I wouldn't can't be bothered to straw too many straw polls. But um, on Amazon, I reckon the most popular price I pay for a book at the moment is one p. Yeah, second hand. And the reason for that is probably because my kids who are five and seven, they're reading a whole bunch of stuff, starting to read all the Harry Potters. Why? You know, and again, why would I pay more than that if it was offered to me at 1p? Now, you probably know the economics of it, that the people who are selling that are not making any profit on 1p. They're making a profit on the package and posting. So it's a sort of Trojan horse business model. So it goes up and down. You know, these prices sort of go up and down on Amazon based on a whole bunch of different areas. So if you think about that, that there is this sort of, without the risk of sounding cliche, this tsunami going through publishing pricing, where most books that can be bought second-hand can be bought for 1p, something is broken. Something has to be broken here. So, um, I, the way I start to look at this at the moment, with my, remember I see everything through a digital filter, is, and I'm going to skip through this very quickly, but if you think about the cycle of a book's life, and I, I would urge you to do this on a sort of regular, almost fortnightly basis now because the world changes so fast. You think about the discovery of, um, of a, as a publisher, so put yourselves as imaginable publishers, discovery of a new book or a new author. Where is that happening? Well, in, you know, from the conversation that I'm having with commissioning editors, a lot of it happen, is happening online. Why is it happening online? Not because everyone's online, but because these new authors or new books have got a community of fans already. So for the commissioner, it's de-risking their commission process. 
This, by the way, is going to cause a huge ripple problem for publishers down the track, which I'll touch on. Um, the author. I have a particular bee in my bonnet at the moment about how little authors are paid. Uh, I think that model is broken. Um, you can read keynotes from Gail Rebuck, from the Publishers Association, all sorts, and get the economics of it. But it's about, broadly speaking, 11 grand seems to be the average author's revenue per, per annum with a minimum wage is somewhere between 15 and 16. The economics don't stack up, especially when these are the people who are our cultural pillars. Do we want to be paying the people who, who are cultural sort of in our DNA the least in society? I believe that's broken and needs to change. And it's, and again, it's cascades back up the publishing model to fix it. It's not something where you can just say we pay authors more. Um, the advance and royalty process. Please, someone in this room fix that. It doesn't work. It's a crazy way to look at it. There needs to be a different model. Think again, think, look, and again, if you're interested in this, oh God, I've just subscribed to this podcast, I can't remember what it is now, Crowdscene, which is a, a crowdfunding podcast, which covers graphic novels, it covers books, it covers this wonderful new film, I can't wait to see, about Van Gogh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh, if you're Dutch <laughs> in the audience. Has anyone heard, you've probably all heard about this film, where every frame is hand-painted? Far out. That's, you know, and was crowd, you know, uh, significantly crowdfunded. Patreon. Do you know Patreon? Patreon as a crowd, uh, as a patronage website, seems perfectly aligned to the creative process where, as an author, I have a following. And, you know, I would pay for a new book by an author that I love. Um, in the airline article, I covered, um, I made reference to Radiohead's release of the In Rainbows album. Please study that. It's really hard. You can find the links through that article, but it was very rare to find commentary from the music industry about why the publishing of that album was so important and what the figures were. Because basically they gave it away in low quality or medium quality MP3s. Uh, and then did a, a pyramid of exclusivity up to, um, you know, uh, expensive, I think it was about £50 uh, vinyl version, you know, limited edition. I got the vinyl version. <laughs> I haven't unpacked it from its cardboard packaging. I haven't even opened it up yet. I do that because some things that I do, including signed books, I don't even unwrap, I just like to have them there. And then I'll buy the paperback as well. So I am a particular, and I think not, uh, not rare person, when you like something, you want to have that experience as intensely and immersively as you possibly can. So think about that as book publishers. Don't just think about hardback, and paperback. Think about the limited editions, the free versions, all sorts of different areas. The world, consumers are wanting to consume these things in different ways. Um, and the advance on royalties just doesn't really work in that space. Um, what is the role of an editor in the future where we can crowdsource editing skills? Um, you know, I, I'm not an editor, but I, I'm actually not bad at it, I found, because friends of mine who are writing novels send me their novels and I, and I, I sort of critique them. And we, I like that a lot. I like the experience of it. They like the experience of it. Um, but it's one of the pillars, probably the pillar of, of a publishing company that you know, you've got editors. Um, marketing is the other pillar that publishers say they have. 
in my notes down here, I've just put an exclamation mark on it because I couldn't think of anything to say, you know? <laughs> the, marketing budget, the marketing budget of a new book is, is nothing. I mean, uh, oh God, um, move on. Um, manufacturing, you know, that whole world's changed into print on demand over the last 20 years and is only going to go further and further and further. Since it's not even print-on-demand in a factory, it'll, print, it'll be print-out at our homes. Or oh, I suppose isn't that called a Kindle anyway, where we've just been able, you know, we just read it on a different device. Um, distribution, distribution's changed. Amazon, do, you cannot underestimate how Amazon has already changed. But let's just make a hypothesis that it's only had about a third of the impact that it's going to have. It's got another two-thirds to run through the industry. Imagine that and think, think what the rest of that is going to have. Um, and then the bit I never really got my head around, because again, it was so crazy when I was a penguin. Pulp, pulping books, what's that all about? I mean, <laughs> that seems absolutely crazy. You've got to be able to anticipate how many copies you're going to sell and refine the model so that you, can, you, you don't have pulp. And again, why pulp it? Surely that's... That's, doesn't that go back into your marketing strategy and you give it away or you, you know, there's got to be something better than taking back these things and, 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 and trashing them. So, as you can tell, my view <laughs> is that, uh, you know, the di digital industry has, over the last 20 years, swept through a number of different industries. TV, music, film, magazines. Um, book publishing, for some reason, has managed to weather the repeated storms that have hit it. Um, honestly, I'm not totally sure why. Uh, but, and I don't think it's to do with the nature of storytelling or anything in it. Um, but maybe, as someone said to me uh, a while ago, you know, revolutions take uh, a lot longer, almost twice as long uh, to hit than people think. Um, and they're always, often twice as large as people think. So we always underestimate the time these things take to sweep through, and we underestimate the impact that it, that it has on it. Um, I was giving a talk, I two references to talks. One was about two weeks ago. I was giving a talk at the Said Business School to entrepreneurs, because I run my own company. It's my third startup company. Um, and... Uh, I was taking them through, you know, what people need to know as an entrepreneur moving forward. And the woman who uh, introduced me uh, and um, got me to give the talk afterwards, I, who's a friend of mine, said, uh, I said, so how'd it go? You know, Do you think people liked it? And, okay, she said, I think you broke a few people. <laughs> so, That's not my intention, but I can't help challenge the status quo because it's sort of what I do. Uh, uh, and, and, and I think what, you know, with the speed at which our communications medium now runs, it's what uh, a lot more people do now than they did before. Um, it's about challenging it for good. Um, and then the second one, which was, was slightly more irritating for me, was I was, I was talking in Australia to this uh, Book Publishers Association thing. So all the book publishers were there. And, and I, was, I was on a panel with someone from the Federation Against Copyright Theft, which... Uh, I, again, I have very polarised views on. Um, 
when you think about it from the consumer's perspective and where things are going to go, you've sort of got to address it rather than arresting people. And in fact, that's what the person standing next to me said. He said, he said uh, so he did a straw poll to, you know, like it might be you. And he said, uh, uh, how many people in the audience have legal teams, Mr. Book Publishers, including like, you know, mom and pop book publishers? And about three people put their hands up. He said, well, I suggest, you know, with piracy, you all need legal teams. And I was just sitting there sort of drumming my fingers going, I can't believe you just said that. Uh, so I then went up and I said, how many of you uh, have marketing teams? And they'll put their hand just like, that's what you need to combat piracy, not legal teams. The guy has got it wrong. It's not, about, it's not about suing your readers. Can you imagine if you now run your publishing company and you hear of piracy, you end up suing your readers and you think somehow that's a good consumer customer relationship <laughs> strategy. Uh, wrong. It's about the fact that you now having a people engaging, as I said, in a far more passionate way with literature and with media than they ever have done. And through, you know, the ability to sort of make all these, you know, print on demand processes and so forth, we can address those. Don't sue people. At all, actually. I'm going to put it out. I really, I, I think it's, it's such a sort of bad strategy. So, um, where I'm, at, I'm, where my head's at now is, is that, is, is this, bring everything up to date and then I'll finish. Um, over the years, uh, I've started to sort of crystallise the idea that a story is made up of characters, combination of characters, um, the, story, the story world that the characters exist in, and the narrative, the story that happens to them. And it's pretty, you know, uh, it's a generalisation, but it's pretty uh, ubiquitous. And so I might take Harry Potter, I've got Harry Potter and I've got Hogwarts and I've got the storyline. And it started to interest me that actually, with, if you take something like Harry Potter, where is the emphasis? You know, where is the thing, where are the bits you could remove from the Harry Potter franchise and still it would stand up? Is it, could you remove Harry Potter? Could you remove Hogwarts? Could you remove the storylines that happen? Well, the storylines happen, as we know, because there are so many books around it. So they, they happen, the storylines are new each book. Hogwarts is the school. Hogwarts is a storyline can't really remove that much other than Privet Drive. But if you were to set a whole new franchise in Privet Drive, I don't think it's going to go down particularly well. Hogwarts <laughs> is where the magic happens. Harry is a school kid. He will grow up and he will leave that school. Now, I don't know what you feel, but when I'm reading the Harry Potter books, I reckon I'd probably read books which are about the new generation coming into Hogwarts rather than following Harry into his career in accountancy or wherever he goes off to. <laughs> it's, so, to me, the important thing about that novel is Hogwarts. Now, if I were to recreate that in either a movie form or digital form, that's expensive. It costs a lot of money in CGI to build those, those castles and all those different sort of things. So, uh, and the storyline is, is, as I said, sort of, you know, interactive fiction, you can interrupt it. The characters, however, are interesting. So um, I did a project about a year and a half ago called The Suspect, which is, if you've got your pen handy, thesuspect.com. And it was based on this theory. If you ever watch a police procedural drama, like NCIS, CSI, any of those things, 
you know, they all have big car smashes, loads of fancy graphics and stuff, but then there's something strange happens about halfway through every episode, which is that there is the interrogation scene. An interrogation room is grey wall like that with maybe a clock, and that's it. Oh, and a two-way mirror, which this hopefully isn't. Um, <laughs> uh, now, what it, what, and it's two people, almost always two people. And it's always the tension point, you know? It's these two battles, meeting of minds, with the, effort, with the story world stripped away. The narrative is sort of taken down, but the characters are where those two come together. And I thought, given the internet is a communications medium, which is about communicating, can I recreate that tension where you are sitting opposite the table? From the suspect and you are having a conversation in as if it was you and I don't mean detective inspector you or some role-playing game but you with your Facebook friends your family your all your sort of social networks everything that you do every day because he's called this guy who's a potential serial killer has called you in what would that feel like so we did it it's online at the moment you can try <clears throat> that is where I'm now interested so I'm interested now in my new form of storytelling is focusing on character and building up these characters who through clever technology combinations of artificial intelligence and all sorts of things that are flying around at the moment can create these stories that suit the medium marshall McLuhan, medium matches the message i'm the disciple car carrying fan of him is and it's you know he, he had it right at that point so that's where i'm heading now um i still deal a lot with book publishers talk to all of them most days, you know, uh, and the ideas that I'm putting forward to them may be stories, but they won't be books. And that's the challenge that I think a lot of people are going to have to get around, is moving around, focusing less on the medium and more on the message. Can I, can I thank, can I stop Guy, I'm sure we could go on all afternoon having a conversation with Guy, absolutely wonderful, made us think, this, think today. And I love publishing, do it, here, you do, 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 do,